the first guidebook ever written guided medieval pilgrims who walked across Europe to reach the Cathedral of St. James in northern Spain. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're following the footsteps of those vagabond pilgrims along the famous Way of St. James, or Camino de Santiago. We'll learn how this tradition is still thriving, with a few modern comforts tossed in along the way. And then, for something completely different, what kind of welcome can you realistically expect as an American traveling in Iran? Iranophile Andrew Burke will tell us why he thinks Iran is a fine and friendly place to visit, even for Yankees. He'll help us shed our preconceptions, separate the political from the personal, and give us a tour of Iran's top sites, from ancient Persian monuments to the bustling capital, Tehran. Plus, we've got another round of listeners' travel haiku. Whether you're following a pilgrim trail or trying your hand at a little personal diplomacy, there's lots coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're examining two very different and surprising travel experiences. First, we trek the celebrated pilgrimage route of the Camino de Santiago, which has taken Christian pilgrims to northwest Spain for centuries. We'll find out why people from around the world still make this spiritual hike and learn how travelers of all ages can participate. Later, we'll discover why travelers to Iran are finding its people are among the most welcoming anywhere, despite living under an authoritarian theocracy. It's a country few Americans dare visit, and an expert will tell us just what we're missing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I think it's time for a pilgrimage. I think the most famous pilgrimage in Europe is called the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. And this is a route pilgrims have been walking for over a thousand years from all corners of Europe, converging on Spain and culminating in the northwest corner of Spain in a city called Santiago de Compostela. And I'm joined today by Jeremy Dack, who is a tour guide and a tour organizer. And Jeremy specializes in the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick, for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, by the way, the name of the pilgrimage is actually El Camino de Santiago. Uh, Santiago de Compostela is the name of the city where the pilgrimage ends. The Camino of Santiago, what does that mean in Spanish? Uh, the Way of St. James would be the literal translation. Okay. And then it finishes in the city called Santiago de Compostela. That's right, Santiago de Compostela. And what does that mean? Santiago uh, means St. James in Spanish, and Compostela literally refers to the name in Latin which was given to the site where the tomb was uh, allegedly found, uh, Campus Estelae, uh, meaning field of stars. So some monk discovered the tomb of St. James, or how did that all happen? That's exactly what happened. Uh, supposedly, a monk uh, noticed a strange light shining on a certain spot, and he went to investigate and uh, he alerted the local bishop who uh, you know, sent a team to go and investigate further, and they dug around, and they, uh, they found what was later determined to be the bones of the apostle St. James. Now, this was a 1,000 years ago or so. This was in the early 9th century, so in the early 800s. Okay, and it just sort of ha coincided with the fact that Muslims were controlling uh, Iberian Peninsula at this time, right? That's right. At that time, the Muslims had control of the majority of the Iberian Peninsula. Their invasion began in the year uh, 711. A hundred years later, when more or less the, the tomb was discovered, they were in control of the majority of the Iberian Peninsula, except for that one little part up there in the far north. Now, I've had a sort of a cynical attitude about the Camino de Santiago. I've always thought it was sort of a, a Christian excuse to get all the Christians in Europe riled up and, and willing to go down and, and fight the Muslims in Spain to free that area where St. James' body was. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it certainly does, because the church at that time and the, the Christian rulers uh, who were pretty much had been driven all the way back up into that uh, northern part of Spain behind the, the big mountains there, uh, jumped at this as an opportunity to, uh, to help inspire their people, their followers, and people from outside Spain to help them drive the Moors back. So it's like almost, hey, the Muslims have the ground where St. James is buried. Uh, grab your weapons and let's go down and, and uh, 
push him back into Africa. Well, well he uh, allegedly, St. James preached in the Iberian Peninsula, so he, he had a history there. And they decided to name him the patron saint of their you know, fledgling nation, because mm-hmm. at that time, of course, it was not Spain as we know it now. So they invoked the image of St. James in their battles. And this has led to a, a rather unusual situation where an apostle, St. James, is known popularly in Spanish as uh, Santiago Matamoros, the Moor Slayer. And uh, this is one of the most uh, common images we see of St. James. We see him riding on his uh, horse, wielding a sword, chopping off the heads of, of Muslims. I've got a photograph in Santiago de Compostela in the cathedral of James on this great horse with a, just a very flamboyant sword, and it, the ground is littered with Muslim heads. I mean, they're caricatures of Muslim heads. That's right. I, I would think that Muslims in Spain would be down on this kind of portrayal of them. Is there any sort of an outcry? Uh, is, it, is it considered well, decent to show this? I think it's considered decent to show this because you have to take things in their historical con- okay. uh, context, and that's just the way things were at that time. So it was a thousand years ago. It was a thousand years ago. There were many interesting stories t- to do with the ebb and flow of the Christians and the Moors and the whole question of the Camille de Santiago and Santiago himself, how he he really did inspire the armies. Do you think he's really buried there? Well, I don't pers- want to undercut your tour business. But no, but personally, <laughs> personally, uh, I think it's unlikely. So you think it was more of a ploy to get people to travel down there in an age before tourism when they were trying to just mobilize the uh, That's true, but let's face it. This was the strategy of uh, the church in the the medieval days all over Europe. It's a crusade, basically. And to claim that they had uh, relics of an important person in Christianity, and that was a way to draw tourists. San Diego, St. James. There you go. Now, apart from if he's really buried there or not, in the height of the medieval pilgrimage to Santiago, paint a picture. What was it like on the pilgrimage trail? On the pilgrimage trail. Well, you had people who uh, had heard of this miraculous discovery and the existence of these relics, which were considered to be very, very important. The the Pope named uh, Santiago one of the three holy cities in Christendom, along with Rome and Jerusalem, so that if you made a pilgrimage to those cities, uh, you were awarded redemption of your sins and indulgence. That's big time, one of the top that was, three. That was big time, exactly, one of the top three. So, so. a lot of people were heading into Santiago. And not just uh, from within the Iberian Peninsula, of course, but from all over Europe. This has actually led to an amazing flow of culture, art, and knowledge from countries more to the east, such as France, the building styles of the Gothic cathedrals in France were taken into Spain. Well, does that explain why you've got such great churches in Burgos and Lyon and cities exactly. along the route? Uh, those designs were based on uh, For the French Gothic designs uh, from France. So it must have been a huge deal. As a matter of fact, I write guidebooks, so I'm, I'm really connected with this little factoid. And in the 12th century, I understand the very first guidebook ever written was written by a French monk to help people get to Santiago. And that's right. Uh, the French monk, uh, Emery Picot, I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly for the francophones. <laughs> yeah, he he did the journey and he wrote uh, the chronicle of, of his journey with, I guess, with a view of uh, helping people who came after him. So little pitfalls to watch out for, where the best youth hostels are and so on. Exactly. Of course, he, <laughs> he was considered to be rather um, an ill-tempered fellow, and he seems to have not had a very good impression of many of the people he met in Spain at that time. But the fact was that uh, the road to Santiago was plagued with bandits, mm-hmm. and not to mention plenty of opportunities to get sick and ill. And in fact, many people just didn't make it all the way. What was the standard gear of a pilgrim back then? If you were hiking with these people a thousand years ago, what would they have with them? Well, typically, let's start with your clothes. You'd be wearing a thick woolen cape uh, with a hood that would protect you from the elements because that part of Spain, the weather is cold and wet, rather uh, like it is up in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And you'd be carrying a gourd in which uh, you would have your water. And you'd typically, so we are told, you'd be carrying a scallop shell, hmm. uh, which was used as a, uh, for varying uses. It was uh, a spoon, I think more than anything, or it could serve as a little plate in itself if it were big enough. And it's become one of the great symbols of the Camino Santiago. All over Europe, you see churches with scallop shells embedded in them relating to pilgrimages that have left from that church to go to Santiago. Yeah, I mean, there are several theories as to why the scallop shell has become symbolic of the Camino Santiago. 
Uh, one of them is just what I've said, that the pilgrims carried it as a utensil, basically. Right. But other theories are that the body of St. James was brought to Galicia in a scallop-covered uh, stone boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also the theory that the scallop came to represent the various Caminos de Santiago that all converge. And then if somebody had made this pilgrimage, they would wear a scallop shell to, to sort of boast from a religious point of view that they had done this? Is I think that's, that's certainly true. Because that was a symbol that they had actually made it. Okay, well, that was a thousand years ago. Suddenly... Maybe not suddenly, but today for sure, it's trendy again. I mean, lots of people are, are making this pilgrimage, and, and they're not all pilgrims and bare feet with scallop shells, right? Uh, not anymore. You do occasionally find people who do it almost as the original pilgrims do with the whole get-up. But uh, nowadays, pilgrims or people do the walk, I should say, on the Camilo de Santiago for many reasons, and religion is only one of them. Uh, many people do do it for religious reasons, but uh, many other people do it out of cultural interest. It's a, lo- a great long-distance walk, so you get people who do it just for the, the physical aspect too. Uh, but uh, people do it for a wide range of, of reasons these days. Now, you're walking across Spain, basically. My image of Spain is La Mancha, kind of uh, burned off and, and um, dry, vast yeah. and dry. Yeah. What's the typical landscape when you walk across northern Spain on this uh, community, Santiago? Well, that's one of the wonderful things about uh, the Camino de Santiago as a, uh, a walking or a tourist route today. The Camino enters Spain through the northern Pyrenees up near uh, the Basque Country. Actually, it is in the Basque Country. Then the foothills of the Pyrenees, as, as you head westward, are very fertile. And uh, soon you reach Pamplona, of course, that uh, many Americans are very familiar with. Starting to become very well known for its wine, and you head directly into La Rioja, where, of course, Spain's most well-known red wine comes from. And that whole region through there is is very rich. I mean, lots of vineyards, almond groves. You don't see too many olive groves in that area, but lots of fruit and vegetables in general. Um, that part of Spain is is known as being one of the most fertile areas. And as you head westward. You head into the breadbasket of Spain, which are the plains of Castile, which are covered by grain fields, so lots of wheat. So if you're there in the spring and early summer, it's uh, it's very attractive. Jeremy, that's a longer hike than most of us are going to do. Let's say you just want to do the last 10 days or so. Is that going to be lush, or is it going to be grain fields, or what are you walking through? Well, no, the plains of Castile go on and on and on, but uh, as you get uh, further westward, closer to uh, Santiago, you enter the western part of Leon and uh, the province of Galicia, where Santiago is located, and that is another world. Suddenly, you're back in the mountains, the hills. It's very green, misty, foggy. That's right. A lot of people don't realize that, but the northwest of Spain, is it feels kind of Irish in its weather, and it's Celtic also, isn't it? That's true. Much of northern Spain, actually from not the Basque country, but once you get west of the Basque country, you enter into uh, Cantabria, Asturias, and then lastly, Galicia. And those three provinces have a very deep Celtic heritage. And to this day, you can hear the bagpipes. You got it. It's like where uh, river dance meets flamenco in a lot of ways. Yes. And they're very proud of that and very aware of that heritage. You'll see that heritage and you'll see the uh, results of the weather. I mean, uh, the great churches, the stones are green with moss. I mean, it's quite a striking ambience created by the weather and the Celtic heritage. Yeah. It's wonderful gray granite that they have up in that, that part of Spain. There's much more on walking with pilgrims along the centuries-old Trail of St. James in Spain and an introduction to tourism in Iran, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
This is Travel with Rick Steves, and coming up, we'll investigate the realities of traveling in Iran. We caught up with the Lonely Planet's Andrew Burke while he was on assignment, and we'll check in with him in a few minutes. Right now, we're talking with Jeremy Deck. Jeremy runs a tourist agency that helps travelers experience the legendary Way of St. James, or Camino de Santiago, a route pilgrims have trekked from Paris to northwest Spain for a thousand years. So let's talk practicalities here. Uh, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm, I'm uh, joined by Jeremy Dack, and Jeremy is a tour organizer and a tour guide who specializes in taking uh, travelers on the medieval pilgrimage route that goes across northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela, the Camino de Santiago. Jeremy's website is www.iberianadventures.com. Jeremy, when people are making this route, they can go on their own or they can take a tour. If you go on your own, how does the accommodations uh, situation work out? Uh, What do people stay in? Well, there are a wide range of accommodations uh, for people who do the Camino de Santiago. If you're a pilgrim who wishes to do the walk on their own, uh, you can stay at one of the pilgrim's hostels. Uh, which, of course, is very cheap, and they used to be actually free. You just had to give a donation. Now you pay a small symbolic fee. Roughly what, 5 or $10 a night or no, something? No, like $5. $5 a night. So you $5 can still rough it and be sort of a modern pilgrim and just backpack from station to station. Exactly. You would have to carry all your stuff in your back. How are they spread apart? Are They're these... spread about approximately every 10 to 20 mm, kilometers. Uh, so what in miles, what, 8 to sort of... Comfortable, comfortable day's walk. Comfortable day's walk. Is it first come, first serve, or do you it, reserve it in advance? Exactly. Those places are first come, first serve, uh, which is a big disadvantage. And secondly, you're in a dormitory setting with a lot of other uh, smelly, uh, snoring pilgrims. Pilgrims. So it's a very medieval kind of experience, I suppose. <laughs> That's true. So, of course, you can go on your own, hop, hopping from hut to hut. But if you want to let some experts lay the groundwork and so on, tell me basically the uh, the tour opportunities. Okay, the tour opportunities. We have two basic kinds of tours. There's a guided tour where you walk with a group of other like-minded people. There are fixed departure dates. A guide accompanies you throughout the whole walk. We start in the city of Leon, about uh, two-thirds of the way along the Camino de Santiago westward. Mm-hmm. Then we head westward, skipping over the uglier sections of the Camino and walking only the most beautiful and most interesting until we get to the town of Sarria, and a minibus carries the luggage. And, so you'll uh, nail down the accommodations, the comfortable days. Exactly. We, we set up some nice accommodations. We stay in traditional hotels all along the way. And we have a tour with a local art historian guide in the important cities of uh, Leon and Santiago. But you're wimping out. You're, you're, somebody else is carrying your bags ahead for you, right? Does that, like, you lose all your indulgences? No, you certainly don't because uh, the rules are that are set down by the, the people at the cathedral in Santiago are that if you walk the last 100 kilometers you will qualify for the certificate of completion called La Compostela in Spanish, and it's written in Latin. And they uh, they have a book where they search for your name, the Latin equivalent of your name in Latin, uh, which exists for most people, and that's wow. in there too. So that's a nice... So you get a certificate when you finish it. You certainly do, if you've walked those last 100 kilometers only. And I heard there's a passport to sort of establish where you've been. Do they stamp something it, as exactly. you go? Exactly. So the, you have to have proof of having done those last 100 kilometers. So... Uh, you have to get hold of this pilgrim's passport, which you can do sometimes through your, your local church, even here in the States. It's possible to do. There's also an American Association of the Friends of the Pilgrim of Santiago. Uh, but in the case of our tours, uh, we take you to the local pilgrim's hostel in Leon, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll get it there. Okay, okay, so whether people are taking a tour or going on their own, they get their hands on this passport right. that proves they're at each of these huts or stations exactly. during the last As you hundred. go along, you get it stamped uh, in the various churches or even hotels and restaurants will stamp it. And they stamped and dated to show that you were in the right place at the right time. Now, for me, the highlight of my visit to Santiago was to be on that square when people are coming in after a sort of jubilation when they finished this incredible walk. Take me on the last uh, 100 yards and then into the church. Well, the last 100 yards, uh, you walk into the old city of Santiago, and and suddenly you're in a world of uh, these wonderful dark gray granite buildings, uh, churches, 
and your excitement just starts to build. And uh, there's usually quite a flow of other fellow pilgrims walking with you, some of whom you may have or may not have shared the, the way with over the past uh, several days. There must be a camaraderie for all these there's people. An, that have there's done an this. incredible feeling of camaraderie uh, amongst the people along the way. As I say, you do bump into to people at various spots along the way. And physically, how do you mark the end of the walk? Well, the last couple of blocks, you're really getting excited. You go through a, a tunnel that leads you into the Plaza del Obradoiro, the, the magnificent square. The Actually, literally translated, it's the Stonemason Square. And that is the magnificent main square in Santiago that's flanked by the, the cathedral and the Parador, uh, which is the magnificent five-star hotel where the cathedral is. And you go to the middle of the square where there's a scallop shell, and uh, many people will, will plant their staff that, that has accompanied them through all these, these many miles right there on the scallop shell. And you look up at that cathedral that's been there for so many hundreds of years. And you're just overcome by this, this feeling of, of elation and uh, achievement. You've done it. And you look around your fellow pilgrims and you'll all give each other a big hug. And then there are a couple of rituals that uh, you need to do. And that is you've got to go into the cathedral, which is uh, a wonderful place. It's a working church. It's not just a, a museum or something. Full of people who are there to pay their respects to the tomb of Santiago. And so on the main altar, there is a wonderful silver and jeweled statue of St. James. And there's a passageway that leads up behind him. So you go up in that little passageway, and the ritual is that You'll give St. James a big hug and thank him for uh, watching over you this whole way. And so you actually walk you up behind this gilded old statue. You yeah. hug it? You give him a big hug, exactly. And you whisper into his ear? <laughs> well, that's, that's up to each person. I'm sure people have all kinds of things that they, they, they say at that moment. And then you come down again, and, and then there's another little passage that leads under the main altar where his uh, the casket of his bones allegedly lay. And so you walk by there and you, you know, you say hi. And, <laughs> and, then, and then you finished the Camino de Santiago and you enjoy a great city. Well, there's one more thing to do, and that is uh, to go to the uh, pilgrim's office and show them your passport. And there they'll ask you a couple of questions, you know, where you've come from and why you did the Camino. And then they'll ask for your, your name, which, of course, is actually in the passport. They'll look for the Latin equivalent, and they'll give you this wonderful certificate that's written in Latin that states that you have completed the Camino de Santiago. And it's a wonderful memento to have. People probably enjoy that evening. It's sort of like after a, it's a celebration then. With, with our tours, and I'm sure everyone that does it, you have a celebratory feast. Uh, you go out and, uh, you know, it's time to rest those aching feet and weary limbs and... Uh, and have some local cuisine. What's the, what would be the best dinner to have that night? Well, the best dinner to have that night for me uh, would be some sort of seafood, definitely. Galicia, especially Santiago, is considered one of the best places in all of Europe to eat seafood. So it depends if, you're, if you like fish or you like uh, octopus, which is probably the most famous thing in Galicia. Uh, fish, octopus, and uh, also bivalves, the, the clams and the scallops and things like that. I would have a plate of persebish with some garlic bread and a beer. And for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, those are um, barnacles. Uh, barnacles, and it's like nothing you've ever seen or tasted before. It's the most expensive treat I've ever bought in a bar, and it was well worth it. Jeremy Deck, thank you very much for sharing uh, your uh, insight into the community Santiago. Again, for more information, Jeremy's website, it's iberianadventures.com. Happy hiking. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Turaj. This is uh, Farsi for I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Man Turaj hastam va ba Rick Steves safar mikonam. With so many roads that seem to lead down to the sea. I wonder which road will be the right one for me. Other 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today I want to take you to Iran. Yes, Iran. There are tourists in Iran. And we've caught up with the man who writes the Lonely Planet guidebook to Iran. He's on the phone with us from Laos. This uh, hardy, adventurous traveler is named Andrew Burke. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Andrew, we're talking about Iran. Is there actually tourism in Iran? Do they have a tourist board promoting tourism? Do they welcome us? They, they do actually have a tourism board, but it's uh, pretty hard to find when you get there. They're, they're certainly conscious that they don't have enough tourists there and they want to get more, uh, and they, they think that's going to help improve their image. And they're right if, if they can get people. But it's very difficult to get a visa, so that's, that's kind of the hardest part of that travel to Iran. I, I would think some countries would think more Western tourists would be more bad influence, would be more trouble with their young people, and they'd want to keep us out. But you're saying their hunch is... When we go there, we'll come away with a an improved image of their country. I think it will probably depend on which section of the government you are talking to. There certainly are some sections of the government who who probably don't want to have Western tourists, mm-hmm. but they have said we want more people to come. Um, we're not as crazy as what everyone thinks we are, mm-hmm. and, and when people come, they they start to realise that. And the the key thing you take away from any visit to Iran is the un- unbelievable hospitality that the Iranian people show. Right. Uh, for me, it redefines hospitality. One of the examples I like to use, for, and for people who've travelled understand this, is that when you're travelling around, you, you kind of occasionally get into uh, a situation where you meet some people and they invite you to their house, some local people, and they invite you to your house, their house for dinner or lunch or something like that. It's always a, a wonderfully memorable experience, and the, and the hospitality is something that you, you take away and, and remember. This sort of thing happens in Iran virtually every day. You know, the first time I was there, I was there for three months, and I would have been invited into people's houses 30 times. Not just because I'm the lonely planet guy, but because the people are genuinely interested in you, they're, and they're, they really want to engage and, and talk with you about your impressions of the country, their impressions of your country. It, it's it's a, a really rich experience. Okay, but Andrew, you're an Australian. I'm an American. I'm a Yankee. Will I have the same reception as you? Actually, you'd be surprised. Of course, you would expect that, that Americans wouldn't be popular, but this is not really the case. America was fairly heavily involved in Iran from the 50s through until the revolution in 1979. And a lot of most Iranians actually have a fairly positive memories of that, of the American involvement. Not all. It's, in this, you know, it's not guaranteed. But most of the time you meet people, I've met Americans who are traveling there, and they, they report exactly the same experience that I have, that wonderfully warm welcomes and, oh, where are you from, America? Oh, wonderful, that kind of, that kind of reaction. And then people are talking about American influence and things like that. It's, it's an irony that in most of the rest of the Middle East, in the Arab world, the governments are trying as hard as they can to try and stay on side with the U.S., but the people themselves are not necessarily great fans of the U.S., whereas it's kind of reverse of that in Iran. That's, that is a sort of a flip-flop. You mentioned that some people would think that if there's tourism, uh, people would come there and they'd think they're not as crazy as their image might be. Uh, you've been in Iran for five months out of the last three years with your work. What is this, this story? Do we have a misperception of Iran when we get there? What are the surprises? What are the misconceptions? Well, the, the, the surprises are that, that the people are so warm and, and that the people are not... Um, as you know, fanatical as as what you see on in the, on the TV news. Certainly, you know, as I say, those people do exist, but the vast majority are not like that. And the Iranians have a through two thousand years of kind of ups and downs and being dominated by one foreign country or another have developed an incredibly sophisticated culture. And part of that allows them to differentiate between what a government, a foreign government, says and what 
and what the foreign people think. So they know that even though they may not agree with, say, US policy on nuclear Iran, that they know that that's not just because George Bush says something, that's not necessarily what every American thinks. Well, that's some, that's a savvy outlook, yeah. Now, uh, for yeah. the Americans, I don't know about for you, Andrew, because you're an Australian, but for, for me as an American, the image of Iran is just sort of blazed into my mind, and that is all of those angry Iranians uh, clenching their fists and shaking at the camera in front of the embassy when they took the Americans hostage. And later I learned that they actually bust in those people and they gathered about, you know, maybe 100 or 200 people in front of the camera and they were able to create an image that was just a whole country enraged with America. What's the true image? Um, like I say, I, I don't know the exact circumstances of that particular scene, but like I was saying, the, the, the whole country is not enraged with America. I mean, there, there's a lot of pride in Iran, and, and people do think that, say, on the nuclear issue, that, uh, that they have a right to nuclear energy. But at the same time, the next breath, I'll tell you, yeah, but we don't want these, the regime, these crazy guys, uh, having their finger on the button. Is that right? They, they think of their own regime as uh, guys that they wouldn't want with their finger on the button? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, people who run Iran, and like any government, you know, they're not all universally popular. Right. Um, and a lot of people don't like them. And this is part of the reason why the current president, Ahmadinejad, was elected, is that he was like the, the eighth guy in a field of eight that no one expected to have a hope in hell of being elected. But all the other people were, were either too hardline politically, seen as too hardline, or too entrenched within the system. He was the one outsider in, in the Iranian presidential race. And he was seen as someone who stood against corruption in the system and sort of system which has become over the past 25 years since the revolution has moved away from the revolutionary roots and uh, now is, you know, people getting enriching themselves through Iranian oil and stuff as opposed to sort of doing the right thing by the broader mass of people. So the current president, uh, he sort of runs in a parallel track with the Ayatollah, right? Because there's a, a, a supreme religious leader that is not the president. That's right, yeah. The Supreme Religious Leader actually has the, the final say. Um, so the President can't do anything without the, sort of getting the final approval. Or at least the, the, the Supreme Leader, he has a veto, if you like, over any decision that the Parliament makes. More about travel to Iran in a moment with Lonely Planet guidebook author Andrew Burke, who's on the phone with us from an assignment in Laos. You can add to our conversation in the radio message board on our website. Go to the radio corner at ricksteves.com where you can access the feedback forum to chime in on this or any other program you hear. It's one way we like to stay connected with you at Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about travel to Iran with a man who thinks it's actually a fine idea. Andrew Burke, who writes the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Iran, is joining us. Now, let's talk just about traveling in Iran. You write a guidebook on Iran. I mean, you make money when people buy this book and go to Iran. You must kind of look at the headlines and go, oh, no, there goes my next royalty check. Your guidebook, is it actually selling? Do Americans buy a book to Iran? Um, I, 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 to be honest, I don't know the exact numbers of, of books which sell. Uh, it's, it seems to sell enough that Lenny Punnett are prepared to keep producing it, which is encouraging. And there are enough people going. I mean, when you actually get there, you find that it's, it's very safe and, um, and people tend to go home and tell their friends and they tend to come after that. So, yeah, people, people are going. I would imagine it's probably one place in the world where there is the smallest percentage of Americans out of the whole pool of tourists, international tourists that are there. Maybe there's a lot of Europeans that are there just casually, but not very many Americans. Yeah, that, that's probably right. 
there are some Americans that go on, on, on group tours, and that's, that's eminently possible. You just have to be, in theory, as an American, you're supposed to be accompanied by a tour leader, um, and that's an Iranian tour leader, and that's no problem to organize. Oh, that. so yeah. the, the Iranians have a rule that Americans must be accompanied? In theory, in theory. It doesn't always... It, it, one, the thing is, once you get in, into Iran, things are much easier than before you get there. So I met a, a, an American couple who had traveled around there and they had a visa, their visa extended and off they went. Went off by themselves, blazed their own trail. So just get yourself in through the door. We're talking with Andrew Burke, and Andrew's, uh, we tracked him down. Uh, we're on the phone with him from in Laos, and Andrew is an Australian. He spent five months out of the last three years in Iran, and he writes the guidebook to Iran. Andrew, when you're thinking about traveling to Iran as an American, first of all, You'll say without a doubt that if you use reasonable common sense that it's it's a safe place for an American to travel? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I feel that around, in my experience, it's the safest place I've ever been. There's almost no violent crime whatsoever against, against travelers. Actually, I've never heard of anyone suffering uh, any violent crime. Now, this is incredible. You, you've told me Iran redefines the whole notion of hospitality. They're so darn welcoming, and you're calling it the safest place you've ever been. This just yep. goes right against the impression I get here from the United States. Yeah, that's right, and, and that's because, uh, obviously, you, know, you, don't, you don't hear good news reported. Fascinating. When you get inside Iran, if you want to talk politics, can you do that? Yeah, and that's, and that's, even, that, that's one of the uh, other great surprises about it. The people are incredibly politically aware, and they're very passionate about things, and they're happy to talk to you about it, talk with you about it. Uh, some of them will, as, as they have me, tell you that, they've, that they don't like the government. Some will tell you that they do. Some will tell you that they don't like America. Some will tell you that they do. Um, but they're, they're more than willing to have the discussion. It, it's sort of different to, say, traveling in, in somewhere like Asia, where the vast majority of the population are not really that politically aware. In Iran, they are. They're very well educated. Um, they like to tell you about how their education level is higher than the U.S. by international standards and they are more than willing to engage in in conversation about politics. So, of course, it's safe for us to talk politics, but does it endanger a local person to be seen with a Westerner talking politics with him or her? They they would be, um, in some some circumstances, they would be circumspect. I mean, if you're behind closed doors, it's fine. If you're in a public place, then they might lower their tone a little bit, but they'll they'll still... uh, still happily talk. I would think a lot of, given the fact that there must be censorship within Iran, uh, a lot of people must see a Western traveler as sort of a window on the West. Yeah, they do. Uh, a lot of people also have access to satellite TV, so it's not quite the only window that they have on the West, but mm-hmm. it, it certainly is a more uh, kind of broad-based feedback, if you like, to them, specifically on issues about Iran, but also on, on sort of feelings of, of what's happening in your own country. I'm talking with Andrew Burke, and we've tracked Andrew Burke down. Uh, He's in Laos right now. And Andrew is an Australian who writes the Lonely Planet guidebook to Iran. Not one of the hottest-selling guidebooks on the planet right now, but apparently there's lots of people traveling in Iran. A lot of people casually go to Iran from Australia and from Europe, and a few Americans are checking it out as well. You know, Andrew, in my experience, uh, if you travel in that part of the world, one year less sophisticated uh, people will be subject to propaganda, and you walk down the street and you hear people whispering fascist imperialist when they see an American, and the next year you walk down the same street and they'll be saying, America, very good, drink Pepsi, be sexy, and so on. Uh, Do you find that there's that sort of fickleness, or are the people above simple propaganda to, to shape their minds? Um, they're pretty used to sort of hearing propaganda, so I think they've got like a like an inbuilt filter for it. Um, there's still there's still a tendency to go for conspiracy theories. So sometimes you'll hear sort of theories about how maybe the CIA orchestrated 9/11 or something like that. But for the most part, they it's not it doesn't swing around all that much. I've been to Iran one time in my life, and my memory was lousy food. I think it's the worst food I've ever had anywhere on the planet. Um, but I might have just gone to all the wrong restaurants. What's your take on the food, Andrew, in Iran? Um, it's interesting you say you might have eaten at all the wrong restaurants. The restaurants themselves, it's kind of part of the problem, is that Iranians don't have a great culture of eating out. So unless you're in somewhere like Tehran, which has a lot of restaurants, then most of the restaurants serve the same thing, and that is kebab. Now, kebab is really nice. I quite like it. But it gets a bit the same when you're kind of eating it night after night. There is wonderful Iranian food, but the place to have it is in someone's house. So when someone says to you, come to my place for dinner, don't, don't you know, think twice about it perhaps, but say yes, and, uh, and you'll be richly rewarded.
So that's the key. And what's the likelihood that um, you'd be invited to somebody's home? Uh, hi. Particularly if you're, if you're traveling, you know, as independent travelers, not, not in a group, then, yeah, the chances are that you'll just be sitting around in this Imam Square or somewhere in Esfahan and people will come up and start talking to you and 20 minutes later they'll say, why don't you come to my house for lunch? That sort of thing happens all the time. And that's probably a great opportunity for you to connect with people in a more candid way, in a relaxed way. Absolutely, yeah. There's no better way than that. That's the, now, my image of women in Iran is just uh, walking around completely covered up, but behind the walls of their, uh, you know, in their homes, all of a sudden, they're modern women. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, it, women do kind of live a life behind closed doors to a certain extent. Having said that, the women in Iran are, are, are much more liberated, if you like, than those in a lot of the countries around Iran. So, you know, they can, they can drive cars, and they, 60, more than 60% of, of university students are women. Hmm. But can you uh, justify the, the sort of um, oppressive uh, approach to women in public by saying that, yeah, but in the private lives, it's much more equal with men? I think the, the West's opinion of women in, in Iran is kind of colored by the fact that they have to wear a headscarf. Right. Um, and to most Iranian women, some, not all of them like it for sure, and they would, a lot of them would prefer to have the option not to wear it. But it's not the biggest deal, and they, they're kind of used to it, and, and they push the limits. They push the scarf back as far as they can. They show enough hair, which is, you're not supposed to do. Showing um, hair, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny, in Iran, the, what you wear, there's nowhere in, a, in the world where what, what you wear is as political a statement as in Iran, and particularly in Tehran. Uh, so if you're wearing, say, denim, um, then you're not a conservative, because conservatives don't wear denim, because that's a, that's a symbol of the West. If you're wearing like makeup and you have a, a tight manta, which is kind of an overcoat, and and you have a, your a thin scarf pushed back right to the, almost as far back as it can go without falling off, well, then also you're not a conservative because conservative women would wear the full shador, which is the full black right. tent. The shador just means tent. So somebody could look quite oppressed from a fashion point of view to a casual Western observer, and local older conservative people would just go tisk tisk tisk. That is such a promiscuous person. Yeah. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling through Iran, and we've tracked down the author of that Lonely Planet guidebook to Iran, Andrew Burke. Right now, Andrew's working on his Laos guidebook, so we're coming, uh, we're getting to him by telephone. He's in a little phone booth somewhere in Laos as he works on that book, but uh, Andrew, it's great to have you uh, with us here to talk about Iran. I want to take just a few minutes to talk about sightseeing in Iran. Now, the, the big sites, Tehran, of course, the capital city, Isfahan, Persepolis, and the Caspian Sea. I think those are the, the biggies. Uh, tell me how you would uh, prioritize if you had a, a short, uh, say, a 10-day visit or something. Yeah, actually, I'd, I'd, um, I'd scrap the Caspian Sea, to be honest. It's, okay. uh, it's kind of nice, but it rains there all the time, and uh, the architecture is very sort of Soviet-style apartment blocks. Instead, I'd go first to Isfahan. Isfahan is, is the, the absolute jewel of the crown of, of architecture in, in Iran and arguably in the entire Middle East with a fantastic Imam Square at its centre and three with, with the, the Imam Mosque and the Ali Kapu Palace. Really a wonderful place. The second biggest square in the world after the Tiananmen Square. Wow. Um, next place I'd go would be a place called Yazd, which is this desert city, traditional city on the, on the old Silk Road. How do you spell Road that, branch. Andrew? Y-A? Yeah, Y-A-Z-D. Y-A-Z-D. Yeah, yeah, yes. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, all, all ochre-brown colors and uh, these things called uh, or wind towers which stick up and, and catch the wind. It's, it's, hmm. That's actually a really magic place. Um, it's really nice hotels to stay in there, which are all sort of made out of old houses. All right. Um, after that, I'd head down to Shiraz, and Shiraz is near to Persepolis. Persepolis is the... It's one of the capitals of the of the old Persian Empire, going back uh, the Achaemenid Empire, which goes back to 500 BC. That it was eventually sacked and or destroyed by Alexander the Great. But before that, it was incredibly beautiful city, and much of it still remains. So you can still go and see the reliefs and stuff, which arguably is as good as anything which which was done in the in Europe in the 1500s. And finally, we've got, of course, the capital, Tehran. Uh, what's Tehran now like? It must be just a very noisy, polluted, uh, intense urban scene. Noisy, polluted, and intense are all good descriptive words for Tehran. 
It's a huge city. It's about 13 or 14 million people. It's 14 million? Wow. Yep. There's, it's, it's jammed with cars and traffic, and uh, there's, there's, uh, it is polluted. But it, it also has a, has a, a sort of fascination that, uh, because here is where most change begins and ends, in, or begins at least, in, in Iran. So you see that, like I was talking about, the women wearing, pushing the limits so that they can with what they wear. You have new uh, food scene. There's a really strong art scene. There's a music scene, much of it underground, but you can tap into it if you're there for long enough. And so to just be able to see the way the whole city kind of comes together and, and, and works and how dynamic it is, is, is quite interesting. It's dynamic. not a beautiful place. Dynamic is, is interesting, Andrew. When you talk about dynamic, my memory of Tehran was just this garish contrast of the rich and the poor right on top of each other and of cars that you could just flag down. I don't, I don't remember taxis as much as you just wave your hand and somebody will stop and you hop in their car and you give them a little money and they take you where they're going. Does that still work that way? Yeah, it does. There, I mean, there are, obviously there are proper taxis, but yes, almost anyone is, is, will be a taxi driver if you flag them down and offer them a couple of dollars. So my memory is you just point to the curb and, and if they'll stop, they stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So, Andrew, if you had, say, 10 days to do Iran, tell me quickly what the itinerary would be. Okay, so you'd fly, you'd fly into Tehran, spend a day or two there, then head south. I'd go first to uh, Kashan, which is a sort of city on the edge of the desert. Then I'd go south to Esfahan. If I could squeeze it in, uh, I'd... Oh, in Esfahan, I'd spend two or three days. If I could squeeze it in, I'd go out to a little place called Garmeh, which is right in the middle of the desert. It's a classic desert oasis with uh, palm, swinging palm trees and dates and camels and just a few hundred people and crumbling buildings. From there, I'd go down to Yazd. Uh, Yazd is, an, is a, a, another city on the edge of the desert. Uh, fascinating place, beautiful place to wander around, get lost in the market and, and in the little lanes. And then from there, down to, uh, down to Shiraz. And Shiraz is, is itself is quite a charming place. It was the capital city, and it's known as the city of gardens. And from there, also, you go out to see the wonderful Persepolis. Wow. Uh, finishing off by flying back to Tehran and out. Sounds great. Sounds great. We've been talking with Andrew Burke, and Andrew is an Australian. He's uh, coming to us by telephone from Laos right now. Andrew writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Iran. Andrew, you sound so enthusiastic about Iran, and it's been a delight to talk to you. If there's one trick that you could recommend Americans planning a trip to Iran that want to connect with the people, what's the best way to get uh, in touch and, and really best understand the people of Iran? The, the trick is really is just to say yes. So when people come to you and wherever you are, sitting in a restaurant or, or sitting in a square somewhere, and, and they start to engage you, don't be scared about saying that you're American. Just say, yeah, I'm, I'm from America. People will be fascinated. They'll be probably more likely to invite you to their house. And when they do, say yes. No one's going to, there's no plans to rob, rob anybody or, or you know, cut their throats. It's just about being hospitable and, and engaging and talking to you and talking with you. Just saying yes is, is the key. Boy, that might be a, one of the keys to a Middle East peace. Go to Iran <laughs> and say yes. Andrew Burke, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rick. Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And, if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here's some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. We have a trio of listener haiku today about places the writers call home. Edry Irvine sends us this haiku she composed about her hometown of Arlington, Virginia. Across the river lies the White House and Congress. Here, we still say, y'all. Lynn Long of Fort Worth, Texas writes us this not quite haiku of contrast between her home and her travels in French Polynesia. My dry Texas homeland Bora Bora's water invades my soul. I bathe in the memories. After visiting Germany for the first time, Katie Sutton of Denver, Colorado, wrote us to say that she was returning for a second visit because it was the first country where she felt like she belonged. 
She says so many people thought she was a real German, it made her feel like she had a home in the world. She wrote us this haiku to explain how that feels. They look just like me. I feel I have a place now. Teutonic beauty. Again, we'd like to receive a haiku from you about your travels or send us a short brag about your hometown. Look for details from our 15 Seconds of Fame link. It's in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. Plus, send us your original haiku poems about your travels or write up a short hometown brag. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of our website. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.